You're definitely watching Talking Schmidt on a new year, 2021. Feliz Año Nuevo, compas. Todo el mundo, wait. And we are back. Caught you looking for the same thing. I'm back. Guess who just got back today? Back on the block. Back in time. Back in the days. Been on back to the basics. You know you like that. Back, 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 back. Thank you. Thank you very much. Back from a very minimal hiatus, I'm Schmitty and this is Talking Schmidt. Hello? Hello? Testing one, three, five, seven, nine, eleven, thirteen. Hey. Hey. How you doing? Dude, I'm doing well. How are you? Good. Can you see me and everything? Yeah, perfectly. Nice. Where are you at? Uh, down in my basement, commonly known as the pit. This is Sid, and you're listening to Talking Schmidt. It's cool, like tonight is the night. Here we go again. Just give it the old cause turn, isn't it? All big dogs in. Schmitty. 96 times, Schmitty. Thanks, Schmitty. We on? Schmitty.
Schmitty. Talking Schmidt. That's called going to the hospital, bitch. I can <laughs> shit my pants, man. Your Rolodex is fucking deep. It's right. about the one. The one. The one. Who is this guy? thinks he's tough shit. What's up? We're tastemakers. Come on, Schmitty. What the fuck? I'm here for Greg's Yeah! Hello, everybody. This next guest is someone I've never met till today, but you better fucking believe I've heard plenty of tales. And he's one of those humans that wears his passion on his sleeves. He's been a big influence to a lot of special people to me and the passion of skateboarding and surfing that we all have. This is a pioneer and a legend. Uh, You are all privileged with Sid the package a bruisey welcome to the show Sid. thank you for taking the time oh it's an honor to be here and thank you so much for inviting me dude i'm so i'm so stoked i'm i'm pretty good friends with like logan and wybus and some of those guys and so we've never really met face to face but the stories are endless so i'm really excited to talk to you about a bunch of things those little junior leaguers up (laughs) yeah um let's start with like the very early days you were were you born in newport yeah i was born in newport um i'll get right into like the 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 surfing skating thing i was born in newport um right away i had a uh you know i played baseball and everything my dad was a um a professional athlete um he was drafted uh, by the Detroit Tigers in oh. 1941 when he got out of the University of Rhode Island. And he was also an unbelievable football player. He could have went either way. And then he did five years in the Army in World War II. He got out of the service and did a walk-on for the Green Bay Packers, the New York Giants, and a team in the NFL called the Boston Yanks. And after all of the war and everything, he ended up playing two years in the NFL. And, uh, you know, back then that was pretty good achievement. And, uh, you know, after that, he moved to Newport where he met my mom. And uh, he was just like a gym teacher and a really cool guy. Passed away uh, when I was in my 20s. Okay. So, um I played baseball um, like in high school. He was the high school coach. But right away, um, steel wheels. Uh, We started skating probably around eight or nine years old. And I actually, you know, you hear these stories about these guys who say it, but my aunt actually dismantled a set of steel metal wheel roller skates and made me my first skateboard in her garage. I'll never forget that. And uh, we used to, Hey, we used to act like we were surfing, you know, and um, you know, thus the sidewalk surfing thing. Uh I just stayed with it. Uh, Eventually, you know, got up. My dad bought us a little, like foamy, not like today's foam surfboards, but a little styrofoam thing. And it led to a surfboard. And then it led until my mom coming down with clay wheel completes from the, you know, she'd go up 
in the, the city, like Providence, and come back. I'd beg for skateboards, and she'd come back with, like, nine ninety five dollars uh, clay wheel completes, and uh, we took it from there. And when I was 17 years old, I wanted a particular surfboard, and it was available in New Jersey only, and we drove. My dad gave me my car, and we drove six hours with skateboards in the trunk, and we picked up a surfboard, and the guy said, why don't you take a couple more? And uh, we did. And the next week he came back. I had sold them. He brought four more up. And I've never turned my back on surf and skate. That's how I got into it. So, so did surfing and skating start simultaneously for you, or were you surfing for a bit before? I, I think I was actually skating first. Oh, okay. Because – um it was a lot easier when you were 9 and 10, 11 years old. Yeah. Um, well, the winters have snow on the ground. And like I said, my aunt uh, bought me that, made me that board. And then within six months, you could buy clay wheel completes. And so I had my first skateboard probably around 1959, 1960. Damn. And then, you know, we just watched the sport grow and grow and grow. And I've been passionate about it and been involved in every aspect possibly in the sport. Was there other people in your community or that you knew of? Like, was there some influences or like people you were influencing to kind of join you or anything at that time? There really wasn't like... um a whole lot of skate activity going. And we'll get into that as the story grows a little bit. When we started going to Boston and met Jake Phelps when he was working at Zero Gravity. And mm. and um, basically, um, I remember there was a Hobie skate team that traveled probably around at 67, 68, was that the fiberglass halfpipe? No, they were. There wasn't any of that. Oh. They were just, you know, like street cruising. Okay. There wasn't any half pipes at all. Any, any full U pipes or anything like that. We brought those in in the mid seventies. Seventies. Okay. And I was very fortunate, sort of jumping all over the place. But oh, it's good. In, in my town, uh, there was a guy by the name of Steve Dara. And Stevie started flight skateboards and flight snowboards. And uh, unreal. That's all I can say about the guy. Um, he, we made, he made fiberglass boards out of molds, 24, 27 inches. All the boards back in the day, if they were wood, they were oak. This is before the five plies and then the seven plies. So we had some oak boards. And actually, when I opened up Water Brothers in 71 and started selling skateboards, if someone came in to buy a wood board, we would have to drill a board for them ah. and put on the trucks and wheels and put the loose ball barons in the wheels. And it was crazy. It didn't come with and, holes. And then everything moved really fast. Um 
probably around 75, 76, a guy knocked on my door of my shop and he walked in with the first set of precision wheels because Roadrider was made 25 minutes up the street in Cranston, Rhode Island. Is that, is that real? No way. Yeah, all the Road Riders and all the OJs, he came in with a set of Road Rider 2s with precision barons. And back then, Tracker and Indy trucks weren't there yet, or Gull Wings. Everything was Chicago or Sure Grip. So they had this little sheath, like a little, like cut a straw, like one inch. And that went over the Sure Grip truck so that the precision baron that this guy already had with his Road Rider 2s went over the existing trucks on the market. And lo and behold, four or five months later, everything is that width. Here comes wow. Tracker. So Tony from Road Rider knew there was going to be a big change in the, the, the size of the, uh, you know, the Baron. And that just, we're all riding loose ball barons back then from either A, Cadillac Wheels from California, or B, there was a company called uh, RSI out of Jacksonville, which had the stroker wheel and all of that stuff. Okay. So the second Road Riders came in, the Road Rider 2, the Road Rider 4, the OJ, eventually the Henry Hester, and all the, then the Park Riders, remember those? Yeah. Well, what happened was NHS saw that and they distributed the wheels for Tony. Okay. And then, you know, fast forward 10 or 15, 20 years later, Tony signed a deal where they would buy the company in, say, five or 10 years. But he didn't know he was going to get cut out of the manufacturing. Uh. So when they took over complete control of Roadrider, they moved the wheels out of Rhode Island and over to China. Mm. So when those wheels came out, did the, did you instantly see a pretty big leap in progression as far as like, well, we got better equipment. Now we can skate faster and do a little more technique. Well, when the urethane wheel came out. Yeah. Itself. We were traveling all the time, skating. We went up to the uh, Four River, which is 20, 25 minutes away, and it was a small city. We found all the banks, uh. all the banks. We were carving all the banks. And then we went to Boston. And I'm not claiming, I'm not claiming, but I think we're some of the first guys to ride Boston City Hospital. The oh. famous skate banks there. Yeah, yeah. And um, back then, we were surfers that were skating. And it wasn't too, like, until Jake and Kevin Day and those guys, they became the actual first skateboarders that didn't have any surfing routes. Oh, wow. You got me? That's out, so, of, that's out of Boston, right? Yeah, so we were going into Boston, and they were actually, you know, they would let us know that they just skated. 
Oh, you know, I mean, we all loved each other, but they let us know that <laughs> yeah, we're skateboarders. You guys surf and skate, but we're the and they were true the first generation of guys that you could actually call skateboarders in New England, and they had a a indoor park called uh, Zero Gravity that was actually in Cambridge, right over the bridge in Boston. Mm-hmm. And that's where Jake worked behind the counter. Wow. So you, you knew Jake at a, early, at a young age. Yeah, I, I imagine 15 or 16, Whoa. something like that. Has yeah. he kind of stayed he true the whole time? He, he's got that East Coast kind of like straight approach where he doesn't hold anything back. Has he always been kind of that guy? Yeah. Never changed. Right. To you guys, like, never changed. He was like that when he was a 15-year-old kid. Uh-huh. What are you surfers <laughs> doing here? Just kidding. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> Nick. Yep. You know? okay. So that was cool. And what's up with Kevin Day? I, Jake's talked about him so much. I know he was a huge influence. Yeah, Kevin in- Day, big influence, great friend of, of, of Jake. And... Uh, those guys skated the sea pool all the time. Right. Cambridge. The Cambridge pool. Mm-hmm. That's where those guys were legends. You know, they all skated the Cambridge pool. Okay. And uh, be honest with you, we went up there a few times. And then, you know, let's start throwing players onto the park. And then all of a sudden, here's Jeff Thompson and Fred Smith. Ooh. Out, of, out of Titan. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, they, Freddie Smith came into Water Brothers with his mom when he was about 11 or 12 years old, right? Yeah. And his mom bought him a little short surfboard. We were into progressive. We weren't longboarders. We were into, like, ripping right. on shortboards. And there was something about that kid. I met thousands and thousands of you know, kids, and there was something about Fred Smith that caught my eye. I said, that guy's going to become something. I knew it right away. Just his attitude, his stoke, all of that, you know. And uh, he got his surfboard, and off he went. And then they had a they had a ramp in his mom's backyard. Mm. That all, all the guys used to go up to Titan, which was about 40 minutes away. 40. And uh, that's where he started, you know, doing tattoos as a kid and skating all the time. This okay. is way before Zorlac or anything like that. This is just Fred riding, you know, what he what he did. Yeah, yeah. He later, I mean, one of his board graphics, I think it was Alva. He had Jake's initials or something, a tribute to Jake. I know they had a special relationship. Yeah, um, absolutely. When and how did you become the package? Um, a friend of mine's claiming that down in Florida because uh, surf, skate, and rock and roll. Uh, he, like the total three, package. Yeah, so we call that the total package. He's there. He surfs skates and rock and roll. So that's how I got the name the package. What era was that? That was uh like 80s? Yeah, I say early 80s. Early uh, 80s. The first run of Big World was like 79, 
to 81, 82. Okay. And then 20 years later, we come back again. So is it true that the Sex Pistols kind of came in and flipped the world upside down? Like yeah. you, you guys were just like, what is that? We and that and maybe that sparked a lot of your drive. Well, well, it, it's before that. Um, Newport is located right in the middle of Boston and New York. Uh huh. Okay. So 75, 76, before the Pistols, here comes the first Ramones album. Oh, right. And here comes the dictators go girl crazy. Now, a friend of mine owned a nightclub in Newport, Rhode Island. And we had the little shack on the beach, the shop. And he's there, Sid, uh, what band should I bring in? I said, listen, you want to do some original music for the first time? because everything was covers, right? A band would come up and they'd play Friday and Saturday night, like two sets, all cover music. I said, there's this band out of New York called the Ramones. You gotta get the Ramones. And then there's another band called the Dictators. So lo and behold, he said, "Say the Ramones are gonna play in August. So the Ramones show up, and that was a game changer. They played for two nights. Uh-huh. We're there, needless to say, every night. We're hanging with them during the day. And then the Sunday night, I believe, they were going to go to Boston for the first time. Actually, a club in Cambridge, in Somerville, which is like Boston, just over the, over the river. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was called The Club. And I followed the Ramones up there with my friends. And I shot the first Super 8 movie of the Ramones playing in Massachusetts. And there was no sound to it. I brought four little 50-foot cassette boxes and just changed them and changed them and changed them. And I got a 200-foot reel of the first time the Ramones played. Uh, and what we do is when I got it back, you know, there was no such thing as editing or anything. I just sliced one end to the other end of the 50-footers. I had the cover of their first album glued on the 200-foot box, and I had all their autographs, Smitty. Oh, my right? God. Oh, my God. I had a little Ramon package. Now, fast forward 15, 20 years later, maybe 10 years ago, a friend of mine says, hey, the Ramones are putting together a, a, a DVD, CD collection. Um, can I, you know, sort of represent you and see if they're interested? And like a fool, I sent them my box, my original film. No. I was supposed to get something like five grand, and then there was going to be an auction for Ramon's memorabilia later on. And it just didn't, there wasn't a happy ending on that. 
uh, I got a copy of the DVD, but my actual autographs and box are just somewhere in Ramon land. Oh. And I, lo I lost that. But that's, hey, that's experience growing up. Yeah. And another thing we did is we had Super 8 cameras and we filmed all the skating back then. And so that will be, bits and pieces will be in the, in the documentary that we're working on. But we had all the places from loose ball barons, just riding hills and stuff. Back then, you skated um, housing developments uh -huh. <clears throat> because the first thing they do is put the street in without the houses. And on our island, there's a lot of hills. So we call one Continental Village, Glen Farm or something. And we go there and just skate in and out the hill in the driveway. So we filmed all of that. And then obviously I said about the banks and stuff. This yeah. is before we started building ramps. Okay. So that was, that was cool. And then back to music, excuse me, back to music. Um, we brought the, uh, the dictators to town. And they were amazing. And then we brought the New York Dolls to town. Oh, shit. Yeah. And my buddies picked them up at the airport. So that was an amazing time of rock and roll. Is that, are you in full party mode in these days? Yeah. There's a lot of partying going like, and, and these guys just kind of like, it's almost like one group is building the, the bar just keeps getting raised. I'm imagining. Yeah. Yeah, the bar kept getting raised. And then, <laughs> excuse me, you know, in regular rock, Aerosmith just came out with their first album. And they were like an hour up the road. And they played in Newport at like the Hotel Viking. No way. <laughs> yeah. And so my guy, the same guy who owned the club, put on that show, right? So he called us up and said, hey, Sid, can you guys get a bunch of your surf skate guys and uh, work the door, the back door, you know, not, not the cash door, but work right. the back door. And we're there like, yeah. He goes, come up here at 4 o'clock and we'll show you what you got to do. So we went up there at 4 o'clock and uh, they finished their sound check. And Steve Tyler and Joe Perry and those guys see us. We got long hair now. And, you know, they go, hey, what do you guys do around here? Ah. It's like 4.30 in the afternoon. And we, uh, we're there. Oh, we sort of just hang at the beach, right? <laughs> an, hour, an hour later, we're driving down the street. And there's Aerosmith on the seawall with no one around them going, what are these guys talking about? <laughs> no, that was pretty funny. Right. That's amazing. Uh, at that time, are you aware at all of what's going on on the West coast? Like, or are you in your own world and just thinking that what you're doing is. That's you know a good I mean? question. Yeah. Um, all we had was magazines. Right. Right. So the Dogtown scene, we're running parallel with them. 
And I'm not claiming, but there was no copycats going on on this side. Right. Uh, this is what we did. You know, we went and found the banks. We went and found, made our ramps. <clears throat> and then, you know, as Skateboarder Magazine comes out and stuff like that, mm -hmm. you really start to relate to what's going on. And that really definitely influenced you. It right. couldn't help but influence you. It made you want to do it more and more and more. Uh-huh. Did you start the surf report? Like, when did that start? Was that in the 80s as well or later? No, that was probably late 70s. Oh, wow. But it wasn't a separate number because we didn't have the answering machine back then. Uh-huh. So, you know, you just called the shop and said, hey, what's the surf today, dude? You know, <laughs> they're like, oh, boy. You know, that was like... <laughs> So, yeah, we, we, we did that for a long time. We still do it. Now I still have the little old school box and so go in it, there and set up. So it evolved like they would call you in the early days and then you're just like, okay, I got an answering machine. I'll leave like a report on there. And then when they call it, it tells you what's going on. Yeah. 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 So they, when they, when we first got our answering machine, it gave me a little break from getting 50 calls every hour. Yeah. Dude, how are the waves? <laughs> yeah. But I still had these two guys, and I'll always remember their voice. Their line was, oh, man, I'm sorry. I thought I was calling the surf report line. <laughs> and they're like, the waves are flat, buddy. Okay, the waves are flat. Click. I'm tripping on it because – from what I know, like seems to me that surfers, I'm not a surfer, um, but I know a lot of surfers. And in my mind, they're the kind of people that don't want to blow out the waves. Like if there was good waves, you don't want to tell everybody. So, well, yeah, but see, what we did, I never, ever mentioned our point breaks. Ah, uh, our, our, let's say our, our secret spots. Uh-huh. I gave a generic beach report. Oh, okay. And it was nothing like back then what it is now. Okay. Now it is just a mess. It's just <laughs> like, it's like, it's ridiculously overcrowded, dangerous, and everybody's got to be a surfer. Right. You know, you know I had somebody come in the shop yesterday and telling me how they're a, a paddle skater. And I almost didn't make it up the rest of the day. I almost had the big one. <laughs> you should try it. So it never stops, kid. It's never uh, stops. Yeah, I mean, it's similar to skateboarding. It's like don't ask what you don't want. Don't ask for what yeah. you don't want. You, you want yeah. it to get more popular, and then you see its popularity and the well, effect. No, I completely agree with your point. We're about as hardcore as you get in protecting our local spots. Um, our point breaks are sacred, yeah. and we don't blow them up. In the 70s, you know, 
you were out of town, you pulled down the end of that street to serve, a little bit of intimidation going on, even okay. to this day, a little bit. For sure. But, uh, Here it is. It's just generational. The generations change, you know what I mean? Totally. Like the 70s was rough, 80s, the crew was a little rough, the 90s, the crew was rough. They're a little mellower now, the kids. Yeah. Because now they've got all these online reports. You can see the waves before you go. Right. We never had it. Yeah, they got webcams and, right. Um, Ridiculous. Do you remember like the first trip you took where you like actually went on a trip because of surfing or skating? Yeah. I mean, well, the skating trips were pretty much. The skateboards were always in the trunk of the car. Uh-huh. And it was just a 45-minute ride when I was 16 years old. My dad let us sleep over a friend of mine uh, who had, like, a backyard uh, cabin. And we took our buddies. And we had no idea what the conditions were going to be like. Uh-huh. And we went surfing. It wasn't until... Uh, uh, the winter of 69, 70, that I went to uh, Puerto Rico. Oh. So that was so that's my your first, first leaving the area and surfing somewhere new. And what's that yeah, like for you? Is that a is that a better break or different or or is it just yeah, it was, surfing somewhere it was else? Puerto Rico. Yeah, it was Puerto Rico. Mm. You know, and uh, it it was uh, what happened was um, it was during the Vietnam War. Oh, fuck. When I graduated from high school, it was scary times. Right. And they had the draft. Okay. And the draft operated on the way where they have 365 days a year. Yep. And then they, each day of the year where your birthday fell, uh, like Powerball or something, they pulled a ping pong ball out of 365, a box of 365 things. And if your birthday fell on one of the, they say the 150, the first 150 days picked, if your birthday was out of them, 99% you were going to get drafted and go to Vietnam. Damn. So when I got out of high school, I was selling surfboards, you know, just in my basement. And I told my parents I would try to go to college. And I went to the University of Rhode Island for like two months. And I'll never forget sitting in a dormitory with about 300 dudes and the night of the draft lottery. Fuck. And, wow. Okay. And my August 12th came up 321. So that was like a golden ticket that you weren't going to get drafted. I, I was like, it would have to be like, oh, hate to say it like this, but all out war before they would even get that far down the list. Uh And I spoke to my parents. I said, hey, I'm really into the surfing and skating, and I realized baseball was part of life, but I'm going to drop out of school 
and I dropped out of college after two months and um, worked a couple part-time jobs. And uh, within two months, I was down in Puerto Rico. Stayed there for a couple months, didn't want to go home, ended up in Cocoa Beach, and the rest is history. The following year, I was selling surfboards for the Overland Brothers, and they were in Santa Cruz. Uh-huh. So in 19, the fall of 1970, I went to Santa Cruz. Oh, and I stayed there every winter for about a long time. To this day, I still go to Santa Cruz and have great friends and everything like that. I love okay. that. Do you, do you got a favorite spot that you go out to? Like, are you in Capitola or more up north? Well, or? Side, I'm a West Side guy. Uh-huh. You, know, you know, back in the day, it was, you know, like Wally, a lot of my friends have passed away and then they're younger than me, but Flea and Barney and Rat Boy and all those guys, they they were skating for Consolidated back uh-huh. then and Virgo and all those guys are really good friends of mine. Right. So I stay on the west side with a, a buddy who has a house over there. Okay. That was originally from Newport and I got, you know, stay out there and it's pretty nice. You know, I got married uh, eight years ago. Okay. So travel time, it's wonderful. Travel time's cut down a little bit. Me and my wife travel when we can, but like the solo guy trip to Santa Cruz, you know, that's all, it's all good. Okay. Um, I'm curious how. Well, Santa Cruz, by the way, in 19, and you'll see it, I got to send it to you. In 1979, I had my Super 8 camera, and I I filmed the Winchester Pro wow. at the Pink Bowl, and it's unreal. They had doubles. They had everything, and I, it came out really good. Damn. And I'll, I'll send you a, either tonight or tomorrow, I'll send you a little three-minute clip of it. It's cool. Dude, the trailer but you sent me is really cool. my camera like, and it was Jane, Jane, uh, Dane, uh, Jay Smith, Shogo, Kiwi. Um, you, you got Cavs, a young Cavalero? Yeah. He was four foot tall. He wasn't bigger than the chain link fence around the pool. <laughs> Dude. His waist, he had mad rats on. Uh-huh. And his waist looked about this big. It's incredible. Wow. So it's right around so- that, that, that's like late 70s, right? That's exactly 79. Okay. And then 81 Thrasher comes out. And are you, are you in tune with that when, when the Mac comes out? Absolutely. I, I started working, even though we had flight skateboards in Newport, I was like an independent dude. I like, so I started working for how Lamaflex. Okay. I worked for house skateboards and, I brought our team to the Northeast. We had Kevin Nikolai, Kevin Reed, Pee Wee Gifford, Kiwi, who did the Kiwi slide. Yeah. We had a great team. Now, Doug was the H and NHS. Right. So they had bought the wood machine. So Doug told me, because I was selling his surfboards at the time, because Tom Overland moved on and left town. 
And so Doug's there. He said, I'm going to go for it. And I said, hey, I'm with you. I'll help you. And uh, I'll never forget, I took the train down to New York with one of my skaters, a kid, Tommy Nagel, who ripped. And we met Doug in New York at a hotel and how had a skateboard booth at the New York Coliseum at the uh, toy sports show. Wow. Yeah, it was heavy. And then Doug came up with the train with me, saw Newport, how beautiful it was. And then a year later, sent his entire team to Newport. I picked them all up at the airport. We all went to, we all went to Zero Gravity, where we met Jake and everybody. Uh-huh. And it was cool. And that Kevin Reed guy, they called him Mr. Radical. He was, he was something else, that kid. Yeah. He was yeah. good. There's certain names that throughout the years, they just come into your head and you, you can't identify them as anything else but epic. Like, you know, yeah. that like the people you respect, respected them. So you just know they're already on your shelf as like top notch dude. Absolutely. And like Kevin yeah. Day is it's one been- of those guys. Like I've always heard his name. Jake really talked highly of him and, and different yeah. people from back East. Jake had uh, Kevin and then Jeff Shank, and then younger guys like Seabass and those guys. Mm. <clears throat> but the guys who are close to 60 now, 55 to 60. Yeah. Jake had like the serious. There was and a I'm, guy, the Rekka, who came out too. The Rekka, yeah, Frank. Yeah. yeah. And then great guy, great yeah. guy. And then once Jake got established in California, we, I all met them all at the playground skate park okay. in uh, Connecticut. And Jake came out with all the guys from San Francisco area for a pro contest there. And wow. that was really cool. Getting to see Jake, you know, like maybe five or ten years later and coming out with uh, a couple of guys. Was it Coco? Yeah, probably. It came out. And then going into the 90s, Jason Jesse and Julian Stranger. Right. And all those guys started showing up to Newport. Yeah. It was a destination. It became more of like it went from kind of this secret little gem to more of a like now it's on everyone's radar. Right. And then to keep it going, I get a phone call. And they said, hey, Sid, um, next summer, there's going to be this thing called the Extreme Games coming to Newport. Right. And I'm like, what? So the first X Games were in, the first X Games were in Newport. Mm-hmm. The second X Games were in Newport. I, on record, have the first post X Games party right here. Right here. Right here. Yeah. I'm upstairs. There had to be three to five hundred people in my back. <laughs> oh my friend! Elbow to elbow here. I mean, it was incredible. And the second year, 
the shop had moved off the beach and we had an apartment above the shop. And that's where the second X Games party was with Danny Way and Colin McKay and all of those guys were at the house. But um, what was the reaction? What was the the reaction to the X Games? Was it like we got to deal with this or it's kind of cool or it's a circus? It's hokey. Like what was what were people thinking? Like, hokey. it's kind of funny you said that. Because before the X Games came out, before yeah. they even started. Like merging all these sports and calling it extreme. I remember it was like, what's going on? Hold on. Before they even started, I took their logo and I put out an extreme bullshit T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dog. <laughs> really? Yes. Yeah. I can show it to you in a second. Okay. okay it's on the rack. <laughs> And they wouldn't let people in the X Games <laughs> That's so cool. with that T-shirt on. It, it had ESPN2. It looked just like it, except <laughs> it extreme bullshit. So we were already calling it out. Yeah. It was such a success with ESPN uh-huh. about four months later. I get these two corporate guys come walking into the shop. And I go, hey, is there a guy named Sid here? And I'm there like, yeah, that's me. They go, now listen, you know those extreme bullshit T-shirts you had? (laughs) I'm there, yeah. He goes, would you have one of them laying around? He goes, because we're from ESPN, and we'd like to present one at the banquet the ESPN banquet to the guy who came up with the X games. Whoa. And I'm there like, I don't got a problem with that. Yeah. So I guess it was, you know, at the ESPN end of the year dinner. Damn. Holy. That's what our, I remember because one of my friends went there and he was, he, he entered, he was in the first X games, but I remember. So, it's kind of a precursor to the Olympics. Like everyone's tripping out, like skateboarding's in the Olympics, skateboarding is Olympics. It's like, we kind of already did this with the X games. Like we got scared and it is what it is, but you know, our culture is still what our culture is to us. Exactly. Exactly. I'm a hundred percent with you on that. Yeah. That's why we came up with that t-shirt, but going back to the guys. So, we were like the headquarters where they're getting their boxes sent to, you know, like I get a call from, you know, anybody saying, Hey, listen, we're sending so-and-so's box to the shop, uh-huh. you know, you're going to come by. So it was kind of cool for us. So people we didn't know to actually meet, you know, so like all the pro skate guys came and, you know, we just hit it off. Great. Some yeah. of them are known, but, but it was funny because they put these guys up in a dormitory, right? Nice. The first night, probably five o'clock in the afternoon, <laughs> and they might have got in at one. I get a call from the likes of Kareem Campbell, Danny Way, Colin, saying, "Yo, dude, Sid, 
you got to get us out of here, man. <laughs> Any hotels around here? You know, meanwhile, the little the little kid with no money that's in the X Games is all like stoked. Uh-huh. These guys are there like, dude, where's the hotels around here? Yeah. They're already out. <clears throat> and Tony Hawk, there was this guy with some money, and he had Tony Hawk in this little mansion getaway place. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. That guy was living large already, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, of course. But all the, all the other guys called me up like, hey, you got to get us a hotel. Uh-huh. That was funny. Okay. Is this are one of these uh, pit parties where Mike V got knocked out? Yeah. Okay. Ten feet from here. That's what I, okay, I heard about. Was that yeah. during the X Games parties or no? Yeah, that was the night. Of the X first X Games party. Okay. The post X Games party. When the X Games got over, say three or four o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. Party at my house. And I think there was a helicopter going overhead. I'm telling you, it was, it was <laughs> wild. And all these guys that bringing in kegs. Uh, somebody made Tony Hawk drink out of the beer bong in the back <laughs> yeah. outside the yard. And then I believe. Albuquerque, a local guy that builds skate parks now out in Cali. I think he lives in Truckee or something. Um, he's been out there for 25, 30 years. But I believe him and Valley, he went at it pretty good right, the, right there. And the next, way, the next year, Danny Way took care of some business. <laughs> Somebody out over by the 7-Eleven. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Um. And what about Skaters Island? Uh, opening you know, Skater I'll Island. Tell you about that. Around eighty-seven, eighty-eight, I built a mini ramp right on the beach next to the shop. Okay. We had the Bones Brigade there in eighty-nine. Okay. Little yep. six-foot ramp right next to the shop. I let everybody skate. I set up some kind of weird explorer post to get the insurance from my landlord. You know, we had this little thing where like, no, we're insured. This is a Boy Scout post. Uh-huh. Hey, let's just read that one, okay? <laughs> so, in 90, I made it a vert ramp. 16 across, pool coping one side, pipe, nine with a foot. And we had everybody there from the Life's of Beach guys back in the day, Monty to Hosoi, the Bloodshot Tour uh, was Hosoi, the Fletchers, Ray Bones, Rodriguez, torn with their band, Bloodshot. Um, everybody. A week later, Jason Jesse shows up with the Santa Cruz guys, with Jashaw Mosley. And all of that. So that was a really cool time. In 92, I was in uh, California, you know, hanging out for like a month. And I got a call from my partner at the time saying, hey, they sold a lot. We're out of here. I flew home and the new owner said, if you don't take apart that ramp today, you guys are out of here tomorrow. And this was in October. So we wouldn't have had any Christmas sales. So we had to dismantle our ramp. And we went like a half a mile up the street 
So we're basically Wybe and all those guys started working at when they grew up a little bit. Uh-huh. So I was always looking for a place to skate. We used to drive up to Maximus in Boston and always looking. I didn't have any money or anything, but I was always looking. And I went into this building in uh, Middletown, 30,000 square foot, high ceilings, beautiful cement, a sprinkler system. And I walked in without a nickel in my name. And I said, hey, is anybody around here? <laughs> I said, what do you want? I said, well, I'd like to speak to somebody about this building. And the guy said, you come back here tomorrow. I'll get the guy managing the property. It was on 27 acres. Long story short, the next day I go back. The guy said, you got a couple months. So I had a couple people in mind that wanted to maybe invest and do the park. Uh-huh. And uh, I got a, you know, a tap on the shoulder from people who eventually became my partner saying, hey, we want to do this. Yeah. Uh, the first year, of the first six, seven months, we had 7,500 square feet of the building. Within a year, we expanded it to 15,000, knocked down the wall. And then we made it 25. It lasted six or seven years. We got in Tony Hawk's PlayStation 3. Yeah. I brought Twister over who was originally a Massachusetts guy, Twister and Car Wars built the park. And then I had Freddie Smith and all the other guys, you know, banging nails, doing the trannies, whatever it took. Right. And it became a destination point. I mean, we had guys who moved there because it was awesome. And they got married, they had their kids, they could skate. And like I said, we had a good six or seven year run. And um, what I did was without getting too far into it, I got my partner out of Water Brothers and I brought Water Brothers into Skater Island. Mm -hmm. So being a third owner of Skater Island, now I was a third owner of my own business. And there was a couple moves when I was out in California that released the guys you mentioned earlier. You know, somebody came in and let all those guys go. And I said, hey, you can't do that. And they said, what are you going to do about it? You're a one-third owner. And, and uh I walked out, handed the keys to the to the shop and to the skate park and said, that's not the way it's got to be. And um, I didn't know what I was going to do. And funny how the world works. I had taught this woman's son how to surf, and I never do that anymore. But this kid was special. He was special needs kid 
I said, I'll help him out. Uh-huh. And I gave him a couple of them down the beach. Well, she called me up and said, hey, Sid, I know it's asking a lot, but do you think you could help him out one more time? And I said, well, right now I'm in a position where I, I can't do that. And I told her what happened. And I didn't know she was Hillary Clinton's lawyer. <laughs> and she's there, what do you need? Anything you want. Wow. And we ended up going to court about a year later. And I said, I just want my name back. Water Brothers, my company. I got 100% of my company. A little bit of settlement. And then within two years, the people run in the park. Yeah. Collapsed it. And they bulldozed the wood out of there. They Damn. bulldozed it. One guy took the bowl. Supposedly there was 12 houses of wood. Fuck. Three bills. It was gorgeous. And it was just, you know, off the air. I could tell you what really happened, but, you know, it's just, it was a shame. Broke my heart. Is that, I was going to say, is that kind of like losing somebody? Is that as close to death? Yeah, you got, you do something, you work your life on. Yeah. It's beautiful place. You get people move to town just because of you doing that. They get married. This is their, they work. They go to that park, whether they ride a bowl, whether they ride street, whether they ride a vert ramp. Right. Anytime they want, they do that. All the teams came. The gravity games were going on in Providence, which was like NBC's uh, extreme games, I guess. Uh-huh. Yeah. A couple rain days uh, were up in Providence, and all those guys came down and saw what we had built. And it just opened up a whole new generation. And I believe to this day that it would have, you know, run the way I believe I would like to have seen it run. It would have made it past a pandemic. It would have been in full glory right now. Fuck. We had the first women's uh, pro event there. Oh. We did some really cool stuff. That was rad. Damn it. Really cool yeah, like you said, uh, with the Ramon stuff, too, it's like we all uh, have these really gnarly experiences in life. And the only thing you can do is say it's part of the journey and learning and whatever, but it sucks when those things hit you. You know what, Smitty, too? I do the same thing again. I'd still do something to help somebody out or bring someone in say, you know, like, you know, like. No, it's how we're built. Like we can't help it. It's like, this is the way we're going to do it, whether it's popular or not popular or whatever, this is just my mindset. So I have to fucking do it. And if I'm going to lose, I I lose. But if I don't try, I I definitely lose. Oh, I went for a year looking for buildings on my own. Right. You know, on the island. You know, I I even looked into like, well, here's a place. It isn't big enough, but I'm also looking at this inflatable dome I can put in. I mean, I was going to all the extremes. Yeah. Just make it. You have a place to skate because 
you know, it could start snowing, you know, all winter. You never know, you know. Right. Huh. Um, Skater, Island, Skater Island was really cool. And how it got named, I got the tat right there. I was laying in bed. And in front of me was the Treasure Island soundtrack album. Uh-huh. Treasure Island. Yeah. It was, see, and I said, Skater Island. And I called my brother up who does graphics. And he did the outline of the pirate map and used the same letters that Treasure uh-huh. Island had right. on an album. So uh-huh. it's taken from the, the soundtrack to the movie Treasure Island. Fucking hell. I know so many dudes from back and, east and, and, that was a pivotal place for them and and it sparked their yeah i mean there's dudes I, like uh I, I don't even know who to name but definitely dudes that have skated there and not even pushed them to come west like this is bigger than even what i know and and it opened up a lot and i think i think you know we brought up probably 10 to 12 pros yeah. As kids, you know, like. And how cool uh, is that to see the kid not even be able to skate up until he's turning pro and you saw the whole fucking development? Yeah. Great thing, you know, when you see uh, this kid say, you know, like, yeah, I got my start at Skater Island. And they don't even have to mention my name or anything. Just uh-huh. by saying they get their start at Skater Island. Yeah. Is enough for me, you know. All the kids from Tom, that Dom kid, all the kids from Boston, PJ Ladd, all those guys, uh, Eli, uh, on and on and on. All the Connecticut guys showed up, yeah. Uh, Donnie Barley ran a camp there, you know what I mean? Yeah, fuck yeah, it was, and it was like we're on 27 acres. <clears throat> and you could just sit outside. There was nobody around you. Oh. It was really cool. Yeah, I know Greco and Upson and those guys have talked a lot about it and, and stuff. It's kind of like this mystical thing that from I just grew up my whole life on the West Coast. So I hear these things and I know how special it was to some of these people. And uh, I've got all the building of it. And so many sessions on high a cassette Dude. that uh you know and Wybus and all those guys yeah we all started filming there they all learned to film and you know and then we had bands play there you know we had bands at the end you know, uh it was just a great place you know mm-hmm. and somebody called me up I'd open up the doors. My schedule was, for me, I loved it. I was, I'd wake up, say there's no waves, I'd wake up, go to the surfing port, drive out to the park, turn up the music, and sweep out the whole park. I loved it. Uh Sweep it all out. i do that around 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning. I was single. i just do it. At 9 o'clock, the doors would open up, and whoever was working the door, hand them the keys, see you later. I'll be back later in the afternoon. I go to Water Brothers, and then 
I'd come back and I'd skate with the guys at night. Right. I was still skating like 48 years old. And I was still like, I remember being 48 and Tony Hawk next to me on a vert ramp. I might have just been able to do backside turns and a, maybe a frontside grind, but yeah, that was good enough for me. That's amazing. God damn it. You know? Um, let's talk a little bit about the music, Big World. Um, yeah. some of the highlights, maybe. Uh, I heard from uh, a mutual friend that before you guys could play your instruments, you guys were using firecrackers in the guitars or something. Yeah, well, what happened was obviously we we're into Alice Cooper, uh huh, and uh, we did a show right here, right here. This is all right here. <laughs> so uh, sick. We made, we carved guitars out of wood. I used firecrackers as frets on my guitar. And we had all glue with glitter. The other bass player had one. And then the drummer used all like cans of aluminum foil. My brother was Alice Cooper. He had a a wetsuit on. I don't know why. <laughs> he had the makeup. In the back corner there, we had a tree with a, you know, with the stage effects, the guillotine, all of that. Ah. And we sold tickets. We had right where I'm sitting, the stage is here. We had 50, 10 across, five rows. And we played Love It to Death, Killer and another album and we mined the show perfectly <laughs> and then my brother you know had a guitar and amp and this was a dirt floor down here and uh when we got surfboard boxes in like they looked like big size coffin boxes we'd open them up and lay them on the floor and until they evaporate into the dirt. And that was our flooring until, you know, 20 years later, we had a friend of ours cement this place. Uh -huh. But uh, so we started playing and some friends said, hey, do you guys want to play a SAG party? Now we had never played anywhere yet. So like three of us, went there and I just jumped on stage and started singing and it, at the stag party. It was such a sort of a hit that a couple club guys said, Hey, you guys heard, did it pretty good. Why don't you guys play? So we're sitting at a bar and my other guitarist, Jimmy Silk, what are we going to call it? And I just said, big world. No reason why. And so we became Big World, and we it was my brother and James, a bass player, Sean Devlin, who, who had played in a lot of bands, and Mike Nagel, and me sort of co-sang, and I also played rhythm guitar. Mm. So we started playing out in 79, okay, and... One of the club guys, owners, really 
liked us. You know, we did some props and we were funny. Mm-hmm. And we weren't the really serious guys they're used to dealing with. And he gave us shows. We ended up opening up for Iggy Pop twice. We opened up for Joan Jett. Eventually, I took over as singer. And Mike moved on. He just had some problems. And he moved out of the band. So I became the singer. We did Iggy Pop twice. Joan Jett. Oingo Boingo. <laughs> the Tubes. Wall of Voodoo. Mexican Radio. Yeah. We opened up for these guys. And then we were the only guys in the probably all of Rhode Island that opened up for uh, Johnny Thunders. Oh. And we opened up for Johnny Thunders like three or four times. And the reason being, because we were the only band stupid enough to let them use our back line. Oh. <laughs> okay. And they showed up from New York City. And when I tell you, they had guys with dog collars on and stuff as their roadies, but they weren't even bringing equipment. Ah. The drummer, and they would try to walk out with our snare drum, you know, anything that wasn't tied down. And they're like, wait a minute, guys, you guys didn't bring anything. Yeah. So we opened up with Thunders a Bunch, and then we opened up for Gang War which was Johnny Thunders and Wayne Kramer. Oh, whoa. FC5. Sick. Yeah, I didn't know about yeah, that. They toured, they toured together. Huh. So we opened up for those guys. But we did Iggy Pop twice. Are these at Jimmy's yeah, Saloon, or where are you guys playing? No, we played at <clears throat> All in Providence. Providence. Different clubs like Lupo's, Center Stage, stuff like that. We okay. played up in Boston. We played in New York. We only played in New York maybe once, maybe twice. Boston, a bunch. Providence, a bunch. There was a club called The Living Room, which was awesome. And there was like four uh, four living rooms, uh. like four locations of it. And so we played. We're, I think we're the only band that played in all the living rooms. Oh, yeah, like all the original ones. Yeah. But, uh, and then locally, obviously, we, you know, we headlined our own show and we really did well. And then fast forward, you know, 81, 82, we break up. And, um, you know, we start talking and we said, let's get the band back together. Now, at this time, we're a little bit, you know, known in the skate and surf world. And uh, we put out our happy birthday CD. And that got on a bunch of soundtracks. And Volcom put us on the, just at Foxborough on the Warp Tour, just for 20 minutes. But we did that. And then we did another round to open it up for good guys. And I think the CD came out really cool. And then we did two Skatopias, which was an exercise in, uh, I don't know, brain development or not, but endurance. And playing there. 
and driving 16 to 18 hours home after spending a weekend there was like, wow. My brother and the other guitarist flew into Columbus, but I drove down uh, with Big Tim and those guys. Wow. And the equipment on a, with a U-Haul in my van. But we did two Skatopia shows. And then, uh, excuse me, <clears throat> we did uh, Florida. We went down and we played around Surf Expo. And oh. we played at a couple of skate parks. We play, I remember we played at an Element um, demo with uh, Mike V just staring at us like, you know, it's just like, hi. I think we played like on a little flat box or something. I don't know what we did. Yeah. But that was fun. You know, and I was 55 years old then. Okay. You know, I was in my mid-50s. So uh, to have that, Skater Island was already closed. Um. So that was really cool and uh, really appreciate that. And then we put out our second one, Sizzle and Crack. And, um, you know, to this day, all the original members of those bands, everybody's, thank God, still alive and everybody's friends. My brother plays guitar every day. And Jimmy Silk, our other guitarist, plays guitar every day. Sean Devlin still drums. He lives up in Boston. And Iggy from 5.9 Attleboro. Uh-huh. Iggy Talls, who owns the, the, the 5.9 Grand Attleboro. Yeah. Which is a legendary place we haven't even got into. Uh-huh. Uh, Iggy, during our second time when we came back, Iggy right away was our first choice for bass and he's on both of our records oh wow and Iggy was a total he's the bass player of Big World and uh, you know we had a lot of good shows we we played some uh, after some Attleboro 5.9 parties we played at some of the clubs in Providence so it was just so much fun and Wives and those guys loved it and I think you know we influenced a lot of guys that saying, hey, just pick up a guitar or, or pick up a mic and sing. And I had no, you know, I, I couldn't even tune a guitar. And I'm out there singing yeah. in front of 3,000 people for Iggy Pop. You know what I mean? So right. we just had the time. How did that song Pray For Me uh, come up? Uh, my brother wrote that song. And it had nothing to do with... Um, Jason Jesse's uh, doc. He had like a documentary called "Pray for Me," and then Dustin Dolan picked that up for his part in "Kings of the Road," I believe, uh-huh. or Dustin was his part. And then for "Kings of the Road," Volcom guys, when Remy was driving the 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 you know the the, the Volcom thing, one of the things they had to do when they got to Newport was get a thrasher tattoo from Fred Smith and come to Big World Practice where we played Pray For Me. Oh, how rad. That happened. 
Jason Jesse and Christian Fletcher possibly ha- you tattooed them on your body? Maybe I have Streets of Fire. Ah, right uh-huh. there. Jason looking through the bars. Yeah, full on piece. That's the cover. Right, and then me and Freddie flew out to uh, California together, and Freddie tattooed. Christian Fletcher and Matt Archibald uh, in San Clemente. But all my tattoos were done by uh, Freddie Smith. Freddie Smith. Okay. hundred percent Freddie Smith. That's amazing. How, is Freddie still around? Where's Freddie at? Yeah, he's doing good. He's doing good. He just, you know, getting healthy. And I just heard some good things as of yesterday. Awesome. Good. That's good to hear. So, I'm trying to, uh, Get in touch with him, and I'll let you know as soon as I can. Yeah. Uh, he sort of been laying low out of, out of the limelight, let's call it that. And um, I can't wait to see him, you know. Um, but I heard some really good stuff yesterday. Okay. Um, another name that's a big name to you, I think, is Jim Murphy, yeah? Oh, all the time. I see Murph. He married a girl from Newport. Ah, okay. So her family's from Newport. So, you know, um, not every weekend, obviously, but maybe a weekend every couple months, he'll come up and, you know, he'll bring his wounded knee boards. And uh, Murph's funny, man. I met Murph at Atlantic City in New Jersey when they used to have the trade shows there. Oh, right. They used to have uh, the equivalent of ASR at the Atlantic City. Mm-hmm. Came over and uh, the street outlaw, Arr, get tough. <laughs> those guys were funny, man. Yeah. I got a kick out of those guys. And when we had the, the vert ramp on the beach, Craig Johnson came and shout out. I'm looking at a picture on the other side of the wall right now. Craig Johnson doing some kind of hand plant thing on my ramp. Uh huh. And it was like Freddie and Craig, and it was really good times. We had so many state guys. Yeah, I was wondering. I, I asked this a lot to people, but not with as much experience as you. So it might be way too difficult for you, but. Looking back over all the years, is there one like pinnacle moment that like Tony Hawk's 900 for some people or Danny Way jumping the Great Wall of China? People have been there like where you were there live for something that you were like, this just blew your mind to this day. It was like one of the pinnacle moments. Um, you know, it blew my mind. I'll be honest with you. When I went to Winchester and I saw that. Pro Bowl contest at the Pink Pool. Yeah. That blew my mind, 79. The doubles, all those guys ripping, the singles, the El Gario, all of that stuff. I'm there like, damn, these guys for real. And then and then um back home, uh, uh I used to love watching Freddie Smith skate. Yeah. Freddie was a big part of my life. Freddie had a Toyota van, no window. And I got a Toyota van because Freddie got one. <laughs> okay. I didn't yeah. mind the tuna can. 
Uh, <laughs> I had two of them, tuna can one and tuna can two. And I got one just because Freddie got one. Uh-huh. Freddie's MO was, whether it be Rick's ramp, which is a, a vert ramp in a backyard in Newport in Middletown in a field, or my ramp on the beach, which happened a couple years after Rick's went down, Freddie would pull in in his Toyota white van and just sit in the van. And everybody's saying, Fred Smith's here. Fred Smith's here. Yeah. You know, I could go up there and say, hey, Fred. But everybody would just be like waiting. Fred would just do the slow knee pad on. And like 15 minutes before dark, you got me. <laughs> Freddie would go up the stairs to the ramp and he'd skate 20 minutes. And every time he did that, I got goosebumps. So sick. I yeah. love watching Freddie. He was so smooth, man. And he's a good surfer, too. Huh. He hardly ever, uh, you know, surf, but he just has this style, this skate style that's just fluid and smooth and his skating and everything just is really good. Mm, that's I, I really enjoyed watching Fred Smith grow up. Yeah, he's legend icon. You know, it's kind of funny. Like, I'm older than these guys, and I've always been older than these guys. But I've always looked up to them like I'm younger than them, you know, because I really appreciate what, you know, what these guys do and stuff like that. So I know that feeling. I used to love Freddie skating, man. I used to love watching Freddie skate. Okay. And then, you know, back home, we had, uh, we're pivotal, like Stevie Dara, the, the old flight factories where we made skateboards. We, we basically had our own little ZFX company in garages. And what we did was, he had, you couldn't, have more than five gallons of resin legally on a premises. And we would rent these garages and he would set up hit and run factories that would last for like six, six months. Wow. And you could just smell the resin and the wood and the urn coming out of these garages in these neighborhoods back in the seventies. And that was the birth of flight skateboards and flight snowboards. Okay. Now, flight snowboards, okay, everybody thinks that Sims and Burton were like the snowboard guys. Well, Stevie Dara in Newport, Rhode Island, flight skateboards and obviously flight snowboards were the first snowboard company to put metal edges, P-TECs, and high back bindings on a board. So in other words, that's a snowboard. Right. And so like, uh, I believe, not to get into this, but a company, I think Quicksilver bought a bunch of snowboard companies and they took out a giant ad saying, the real, the real father of snowboarding Steve Dara of flight and they huh. named his first. 
So it was kind of cool having that, like, as one of your best friends. And yeah, boy, he could skate too. We'd go skating all the time. And uh, he was a really good skater, great designer. His skateboards were like, he was the first guy when the boards went to 10 inches or nine inches to do the cutaways. Oh, you know, okay. like you saw Fish. the wheel cutout. Yeah. That everybody had back then. Uh, Derek was the first guy to do that. Damn. Oh, that's Okay. That got a great collection of boards like that. Okay. Hey, I just got a little bit more I wanted to talk to you about, but can we take a quick piss break? Sure, no problem. Yeah, I'll be right back. I got some grip tape I need to return, and there's something wrong with this board I bought. I can't ollie on it. The thing won't ollie. Can't get off the fucking ground on this thing. I want a fucking refund. Ignition Skate Shop, 420 West Grant Street, Lancaster, PA. Head on down to your local shop. Hey, it's Corey at Blue Plate, 3218 Mission Street. Come see us. Meatloaf, fried chicken, deviled eggs, Dollar Olympia beers. We're here every day of the week. We got a garden and we got smiles on our faces. Come let us make you happy. Hey. Schmitty, do you remember the centerfold of Slap Magazine of Chris Markovich ollieing off, it looked like a set of stairs going up to a landing and then landing on a big bread box trunk. It was the centerfold. Uh... And that was, that was at our our shop and that was our rental truck and it's so classic and that's when he was touring for duffs and the duffs team used to say everybody in the 90s came and stayed on the second floor of the shop Uh uh-huh that's where logan all those guys lived up there for a while and i let all the skate teams came up okay markovich stayed the weekend up there with Duff's and they're about to leave. And this guy had something in the back of his mind the whole time. Uh-huh. And you got to go find that. I, it was, and I don't have the picture here. I, yeah, I'll dig it up. He, he ollied, he pumped ollied over the rail Landed on the bread box truck, which said Water Brothers on it with a skeleton guy. And we used to have surfboard rentals in it, drive down to the beach. That was a crazy scene for about a year or so. And then ollied off the truck. Well, who's the guy? Lance or George, D-A-W-E-S? Lance Dawes. Yeah. So Lance was there. And Lance filmed it. Okay. And I filmed it. Well, Lance went to New York like that afternoon. And he forgot he had that on that particular tape and filmed over it. Oh. And so I have the only existing tape of that. Oh, shit. And uh, I, once in a while, 
I'll post it up and stuff like that. But that was another highlight. We're talking about highlights. That was pretty funny. And next to us, there was a bar, Jimmy Saloon. Right. It was a Sunday. And all the drinkers are watching the football game. Uh Uh-huh. And, hey, you got to look at this nut outside here at the Water Brother uh, apartment trying to ollie off our truck. And we must have had 60 people, like, looking at him. Uh-huh. And he must have tried 10 times. He was a bloody mess. And he did it until he pulled it off that kid. Markovich in the 90s. Yeah, he's gnarly. He was, he was going for it for sure. Oh, okay. I'll dig that photo up. We can fucking throw it, throw it in Set there. Set a fold and slap. Okay. I know Dawes. I'll hit him up and he probably remembers what issue or whatever. What about the urban legend of you getting kidnapped and waking up at Skatopia? Yeah. You know, that's sort of like uh, a late decision on my part. <laughs> it felt like a kidnapping. It really actually wasn't, but <laughs> I mean, like, I don't even think I packed a bag. These guys were all in the truck. And I dive in the back. I sort of came to in Pennsylvania when everybody had to go to the bathroom. Uh (laughs) I'm like, oh, man, we're going to Skatopia. (laughs) (laughs) Had you already been there? uh, No. Oh. No. That was my first trip. And uh, that was something else. And then, you know, of course, we show up and play there a couple years later, twice, you know. And Did you get the full else. treatment? Fire and, like, I, describe the city. What happened the one time we were playing? We're playing over the grease pit, uh, the bowels or something he called his kitchen. Uh-huh. And we're playing, and, you know, you name it's going on. We're on the second floor playing. And it gets to be a grease fire on his grill. He had like a 10-foot grill. So as we're playing, the crowd's disappearing in smoke. Oh, my God. And all of a sudden, you couldn't see anybody. So we all run down the set of stairs. And it was wild it the whole place we survived that one the smoke cleared we went up and finished our set another time remy asked me i've been there four times that's i think you should get a pin for going there four times <laughs> yeah <laughs> or just twice you should get a pin <laughs> saying i was stupid right i came back <laughs> and, and, and uh one time, Remy called me up and said, hey, listen, you want to drive to Skatopia? And uh, he flew me out to L.A. And they picked me up. And me and one other guy drove the Volcom tour bus. I didn't even drive. We drove to, to Skatopia. The night before, I got 100% skateboarder and 100% surfer on my feet. Yeah. And my feet swelled up like clown feet. And driving cross country, I had to stick them out the, the window the whole time because we're just <laughs> like on fire. But anyway, so anyway, 
we drove out, <laughs> me and this one other guy from San Diego, and Alan Peterson, remember that name? Oh, yeah. The pro skater that rode for Consolidated. Yeah. So we're sitting, waiting for Alan. And Remy's there, Alan, where are you? Come on, we got to go. And that's where Alan made the decision in his life that he was done and that he was moving to Australia. Oh. And he let us know that he was moving to Australia with his girl and that was it. So us three left. Oh. And I met Murph and Big Tim. And they drove me back to Rhode Island, you know, after the deal. Rune, we met Rune there. Rune flew in. And uh, that was another great Skatopia moment. God damn, <laughs> I bet. Holy shit. Yeah, that place is insane. Uh, yeah. can, can we talk about the documentary? Yeah, um, love to. Um, I'm really excited. It's done by the Kinnean brothers. And I want everybody to look them up. K-I-N-N-A-N-N-E. Okay. Uh, 13 in the family. Ooh. Seven brothers and the brother-in-law started Kinnean films. Are they local Chuck out there? They're from Little Compton. Which is oh, like sick, yeah. Okay. Chucky Canine is 38. The youngest brother is 21. Um I surfed with their dad, who's like 70, 71. And I you know, I saw the kids growing up like this. They're all into filming, whether it's skating or surfing. I brought them over to a friend's house where they edited their first VHSs when they were like 12 or 14. Uh -huh. So this has always been a passion project. Right. Get the Water Brother documentary. Well, for the 10 years, you always thought the time was right, but it wasn't. The time is right right now. This is it. The time is right right now. And as we were talking uh, last year, getting the development of this going, Chuck was getting a call from uh, Happy Madison Productions, which is Adam Sandler's company. Oh, yeah. And he just got out of New Orleans this week where he wrapped up a movie called Hometown. Uh, he directed it at 38 years old. And it's a story of uh, Sean Payton, the football coach who got suspended from the NFL, blah, da, 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 da. And uh, Chucky with uh, Kevin James. And Chucky got the job. He's wrapping that up. And we're filming that. We start all the interviews, all our vintage footage of everything we've discussed. Everything yeah. is on. It's all getting put on like 4K a really great process. Yeah. Uh, the 30s is all Super 8 film. The 80s is like VHS 1 and 2. The, 90, the 90s is all high 8 cassette. Mm -hmm. So all of that's being super quality. We're going to go out to Santa Cruz in about two months to do some uh, location filming and some interviews. Cocoa Beach. Area interviews here with like Freddie and the guys, couple fishermen. Yeah. 
then about four months of editing. And uh, we hope to see it. It's going to go to all of the festivals. And then what we want to do is unique is go like on a surf and skate tour with the movie. Ooh. You know, play it at a couple of events and be there and stuff like that. So yeah. it's called Water Brother, Water Brother. And it's, it's, I'm really excited. It looks good, man. I, I got to see a special little uh, trailer and I was, the quality is amazing. And just the whole vibe of it is very like pull you in style where you're like, okay, I'm sold like right away. You're like, I need yeah, more of this. Yeah. yeah it looks, people get goosebumps and tear yeah. it up. Uh, you can just feel passion. I mean, when there's passion, you can feel it. And, and this is definitely has it. And, the story is, I mean, I can't imagine the editing process. It must be very difficult to take like all this and put it into this uh, yeah. package. <laughs> I, think, I think the guys are shooting for an hour 20 to an hour 40. Perfect. You know? yeah. They call it a full feature documentary. Okay. So yeah. I'm really Excellent. excited about that. And so is the thought that it could be out in 2022 at the festivals? Are you trying to do it I by next year? Well, realistically, I know, Chuck, uh, I got a really positive email from him saying, I'm wrapping up New Orleans. I'm done, you know, with the Sandler production. I said, Hey, spend some time with your family. He's got three kids. They all skate. All little guys skate. Oh, I gave cool. him first skates, man. And he <laughs> yes. pictures of his kids skating and stuff. Fuck you man. know, and it's really cool. And I said, listen, spend some time with your family. But when you are ready, we're ready. So I got the feeling we're going to start with a daily schedule in about two or three weeks. Okay. And get it moving. So maybe January, February. Did the COVID kind of put it on hold? You know what? It just worked out better that way because oh. he was he was in a he's four months doing the Adam Sandler movie. Oh right. So okay. Right. And I was working with the brothers. When we flew out to Kelly Slater's uh surf ranch last month, I went with five of the brothers. Oh. The director and the other guy couldn't go because they were under lockdown. Uh-huh. Making a movie. How wait, so you got to go to skate or go to that surf that uh perfect wave or whatever? Kelly's yeah, wave? that's me at the end of the sizzle reel. Oh and so what do you think about that? Is that from a purist, is that cool or is that like what do you what are your think thoughts on that? Um it's unique. Um obviously a purist will look at it like I don't know, but in a way, it's a liquid skate park. Yeah. You know, surfing these days, if you're on the lineup with somebody, they're aggressive. They don't want you to catch a wave. They don't <laughs> want to say how good you rode that wave. Right. You know, they don't want to see that. At this place, yeah, great job, you know, because – it's like dropping in on a ramp or like your run, you know, like your run to do the rail. It's it's your time. So in, in that way, it's good because it, it 
the wave itself is unbelievable. Yeah, it looks. It is. Uh-huh. I mean, it's a machine perfect right, and when it goes the other way, it's a machine perfect left. Right. Um, but the vibe of come on, man, you can rip this. Let's see you do good. You don't get that in the water now. No. No, you don't get that. Well, I think that's something that we struggle with as skateboarders and I'm sure surfers as well. And it's just basically in a nutshell, the 2021, probably a little earlier, but the mentality like has skateboarding and surfing gotten soft because of the times? Like, how do you talk about these fucking gnarly people that were pioneers of something that's so beloved to us that clearly did things that aren't acceptable now? You know what I'm saying, like that's been a heavy one for us as as far as Thrasher and media and stuff, being able to talk about like, let's say a Mark Gator Rogowski, who was one of the best vert skaters of all time, but he right. killed somebody. You know what I mean? Yeah. And just all these different things that are like, like you said, the the uh, the showing up at the skate park, like, hey, it's skate Wednesday. Like, that ain't cool, dude. That's not what we're about. Like, we don't no. you want to be in the water and feel the vibe because that whole thing is why we do it. And you don't do it. We put in the time we, we, you, we earned our badges like we earned the respect to be here. You did not. And like, there's something to be said about that, right? Right. And you know what? I'm going to be get back Schmitty. That's one thing I love about skateboarding is let's say the 5.9 bowl. There'll be 50 people around that bowl during his big parties and stuff like that. And everybody is behind every ride, you know, like, yeah. And, you know, just to see that is why I love skateboarding so much. Uh-huh. You know, it's like everybody's pushing each other. They're behind each other. And it just, you know, it makes great friendship, uh, great progression for the sport. And it, it's it, that's why I love, I love skateboarding. I really do. Mm-hmm. I love, like, whether it's being next to somebody on a ramp or being watching somebody street skate, slapping them five, like the camaraderie, I can't say it. It's just, it's, it's what makes skateboarding skateboarding. And will we lose that at the Olympics? Because you can't hold on. I mean, at the X Games, they had microphones on and like, you can't talk to this guy and don't do that. And that wasn't real. You know what I mean? That's, that's one problem. Yeah. No, I know. You know? I'm, I'm wondering if that's going to be a train wreck or a, or an ongoing situation. Um, it'll yeah. be interesting. I mean, as a skateboarder, though, we have to watch it. We ha- Whether you like it or not, you have to see it. It's history. So you have to see that's how true. it unravels. You got uh, I mean, yeah. It's your job. The, the crew of... Uh, you know, all the shenanigans and all the crew of different derelicts and all the people that have come through your shop and stuff. I got a list of names and they're pretty funny. It's Dennis, the cabbie store detective, yeah. Corkery, Wall Street, Ernie bag of glue, Brown yeah. tornado and Brown uh, tornado. Ma- Mary Brown. pick a paper. <laughs> yeah. Mary pick a paper. <laughs> yeah. 
Are these are kind of the locals that have just hung out from time in the shop, huh? Either that or they walk by the shop every day. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Dennis Takavi was uh, just a classic sort of homeless guy that you know we sort of kept an eye on. You know what I mean? And uh, Mary Picker Paper was a lady who just walked around, picked up every piece of paper in front of the shop, and. You know, and then she would put it all in a old pizza box you might find on the street and just put it all in our front door, like saying, okay, now you guys throw this away. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. So we, we had some, you know, and like one thing we, we, some of our nickname tags are so funny, like <laughs> from Tornado, Jeff. <laughs> We had the Jobless Clothing Company, a big skate company back in the day. Yeah. Uh, they were great. They, were, they all lived in Newport. Their factory was uh, uh, Providence and uh, Four River. And they called me up and uh, said, hey, Sid, we, we're moving. We need someone to clean up our factory after we get everything out of there. And I said, well, I got one guy I can – and he went there and he did it like a five hour, I mean, an eight hour job in like two hours. And there used to be an old ad called the White Tornado, who was a detergent cleaner or something. And this guy's a Portuguese guy. And they said, who was that? And I said, it was the Brown Tornado. <laughs> that was kind of funny. So stuff like that. And that's, you know, another thing we we're fortunate enough to have that. And then we had, what's his name? Shep was always running around Rhode Island, the Obey guy. Uh-huh. He, he was around. He used to screen our clothes, actually. He used to do our, I used to go up to his house and pick up my stuff. He was our silk screener before he, he became famous and everything. Okay. Sick, dude. Man, I could talk to you forever. The stories are endless. I appreciate your time. Um, we usually end the show with like, you can pick any song that we could play at the end. Like, what, whatever. If you went into a bar and there's a jukebox there with every song you ever wanted, which one are you going to click on? Let's play Leonard Skinner's Simple Man. Okay. Fuck yeah. Yeah. Uh, what do you what are your thoughts on the great American band question as far as like we got Aerosmith, like you said, that's kind of the notoriety. We got Van Halen, we got Ramones, Black Flag, Bad Brains, different bands that have what what do you who do you think is like the most impactful for the history of American bands? Well, you know, when when Tyler and all those guys started wearing all the scoffs and everything, they lost me. So I, I, I think for me, it's, it's the Ramones. Ramones. I I don't know. You know, I mean, I love outlaw country. I love all types of music, but out of that listing that you just threw at me. Yeah. You know, Ramones and dictators in the seventies were very influential. Okay. Very influential. Hell yeah. Well, dude, thank you so much. And please stay in touch with me as far as this gets developed. I'm happy to help you promote it from my end in any way I can. 
I can't wait to see it. I'm definitely down. If you guys do a tour, let me know. I want to come check that you, out. Like, we'll that it's going to yeah. be it's going to be sick, dude. Congratulations on that. And also, I'd be super honored if you have a Water Brothers sticker for the wall. I'll get that. I'll get you a, a, a couple T-shirts. That'd be amazing. And I can send you some stuff in return, too. Send me, send me your address. Okay, we will do that. Uh, it's right, been an sure. honor, dude. Thank you so much. I really uh, appreciate it. The best. We can keep going, kid. Yeah, absolutely. Cheers. <laughs> okay, take care. Keep the wheels greased. Yeah, we got it. All right, bye-bye. Bye-bye.
Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Schmidt. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Anchor, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. When you subscribe, you'll get notifications every Tuesday of new episodes the minute they become available. Also, please leave reviews and a five-star rating. It's the best way to help the show grow. All of the episodes will always remain free, but if you would like to help support the show, you can do so at TalkingSchmidt.com, where you can pick up some merchandise like t-shirts, beanies, hats, and stickers. The website has an entire archive of all of the episodes, with extra photos and videos. Email us with any suggestions, comments, or ways that the show may have improved your life at TalkingSchmidt at gmail.com. All interviews are conducted, edited, and produced by Schmitty. The intro music is Mary's Cross by the band Nature. A very special shout-out goes to the executive director, Cheryl Camisa. This is Talking Schmidt, where the Rolodex is deep, but the conversation is deeper.